tonight on Arena. The publishers who have had three Booker Prize wins, including Paul Lynch and Williams Russell Cole on his film about his great-grandmother, Mary Jane O'Donovan Rossa. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena, and you can watch a live stream of us from this evening. And you will find that live stream on RTE.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live. Mary Jane Irwin O'Donovan Rossa was one of the most active and effective revolutionary women of her time. At a young age, when her husband Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa was imprisoned for revolutionary activities, she went on to New York City to gain support for the Irish from the Irish diaspora and transformed herself into a speaker, poetry reader, and fundraiser for the Irish for Irish political prisoners. She played a pivotal role in organising the 1915 funeral of O'Donovan Rossa, a massive event that many see as the spark that led to the Easter Rising and eventually the formation of the Irish Republic. Porrick Pierce's famous graveside oration has gone down, of course, in history. But as, as with many women in history, Mary Jane's accomplishments are largely unknown or forgotten. Now her great-grandson, Williams Cole, has made a documentary called Rebel Wife and it will have its world premiere screening this weekend at the Indy Cork Festival. Delighted to have Williams Cole join us from our Cork studio this evening. Um, I, I guess, Williams, growing up in a in a family that had such famous revolutionaries in its past, it, it must have been a large part, or was it a large part of your growing up, a large part of the family conversation? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you, Indy Cork, for premiering the film. Um, it was... But, you know, it, it was selective, let's put it that way. I mean, everyone is familiar with um, the controversial parts of O'Donovan Rasa's campaigns, the dynamite campaign, etc. Um, growing up, we really just knew, you know, he was a hero. We knew, like a lot of Ireland, the Podrick Pierce oration. It was only when I started to kind of peel back and do the research that I understood the more controversial parts of his life. And it's funny because I talked to some of the other older family members and they remember uh, hearing that Mary Jane was the real hero when they were growing up, mm. which I found fascinating because, uh, you know, while they knew that, that Jeremiah was, was a high-profile person, it was Mary Jane that was carried down, you know, to them as one of the major heroes. And... When you look at the contrast between that narrative inside the family and the lack of knowledge about her story outside the family, I found that really fascinating. That was one of the motivators to do this film. I can imagine. I'm guessing that once you would have spoken about O'Donovan Rossi to anybody outside of the family, oh, the first thing they would have said, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossi, you're related to him. Mm -hmm. I bet there were very few who said to you, Mary Jane O'Donovan Rossa, or Mary Jane Aaron, in, in fact, in, we could say as well, before, before she was married, you're related to her. I'm guessing she was practically unknown in the general milieu of people. I would say practically unknown, yes. But there are exceptions, because when O'Donovan Rossa was in English jails in the mid-1860s, uh, Mary Jane, you know, she reinvented herself, as you mentioned in the opening, mm. as as a reader. And really, at that time, it was 
as close as you get to entertainment, like a Netflix. People went to these uh, halls, <laughs> and this was mostly Irish diaspora in in United States. And she was a very talented orator and reader. So she would read popular poetry like Edgar Allan Poe or whatever. And then she would, um, she would read some of her own poetry, which was very nationalist and about freeing the political prisoners and about freeing Ireland. And so in all these, uh, you know, a lot of immigration, obviously, mm. you know, after the, um, uh, you know, in the 1840s and such. And um, so she would kind of go to these places and do the readings. And sometimes there were thousands and thousands of people. And she was a real celebrity. I mean, doing the the article research in a lot of the smaller newspapers, I was actually flabbergasted by the amount of times yeah. that she was mentioned and the headlines and the accolades and everything. So, you know, she had that moment of celebrity. and But when, when O'Donovan Rasa was exiled and came back to New York... As yeah. of the time, she took a back seat, even though she was very, she was she still very been. consistent in 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 you know planning yeah. and strategizing. Absolutely, but I, I, even as you describe it to us there, Williams, that you know, there's no question. But even for a woman to have done that at that time, it was hugely unusual. It was hugely unusual, and she also was. Uh, she she raised a lot of money. She you know she supported her family. She sent money for the uh, families of the political prisoners. Uh, she was financially mm. independent, which is incredible. You know, and she you know up until the end of her life, she prided herself on being financially independent. I mean, the Donovan Rosses were not. Of, you know, they weren't very flush overall. I mean, yeah. they were always having money problems in New York, um, you know, falling out with this, falling out with that. But she, um, you know, she wrote in a letter at the end of her life that she was proud of being financially independent up until the last few months of her life when and things I think were falling apart. It's, it's true to say, too, isn't it, that even when O'Donovan Rossa was uh, released from jail and, and that was dependent on his going into exile, i.e. he had to move to, to America... Um, there were times then, even when he was, in inverted commas, the breadwinner of for the family, that in fact she still had to go out to work, still had to do those talks and those readings to earn simply to earn money for the family. Exactly. Yes, they both did it, but she would, you know, rally when they needed it and go out there and. Yeah. So she must have been a great reader too. I mean, I wish we had recordings of her. Yeah, because I, I think she went to a very famous actor at the time for, for elocution lessons. So obviously she had a, a wonderful stage presence. And I must say, the pictures of her, she she looks like a very striking woman. You can see how she would have really, you know, held a stage and held an audience um, in the palm of her hand, probably. Let's have a listen to a little clip from the film, if we could, Williams. And I think this is very interesting. I mentioned uh, who outside of the family would have known about her. Well, there's certainly one woman who knows a lot about her. Uh, this is Judith Campbell. Uh, historian and let's listen to what she has to say about your great-grandmother please she grew up in a nationalist household her first glimmer of politics was in her own home she was very well educated which is very unusual in the period right post famine uh, so she comes by her politics very naturally so she was probably as fervent as Rasa. i think people always want to say oh you know she was so devoted to her husband you know i i, I think she was equally as devoted to nationalism. I mean, you know, Rasa was as much a vehicle for her as he was, you know, a husband and a, and a lover, you know? <laughs> Which I think is really interesting. She's certainly as important to the Fenian movement as pretty much anybody else.
Fantastic. And there we had, yeah, she is quite extraordinary. Isn't she? That's Judith Campbell uh, describing uh, Mary Jane O'Donovan Rossa, the great grandmother of the man I am speaking to this evening, Williams Rossa Cole, who is uh, the director of this documentary film about his great grandmother. And I think it was important to you, we get a sense of it there from Judith uh, Williams, that it wasn't, you didn't want to say behind every great man there is a woman. That's not what you were looking for in this documentary. You were looking for. I want to tell about my great-grandmother, who she was in relation to herself, not in relation to her husband. Yes, exactly. I think that's, a, you know, kind of a bit of a worn-out cliche at this point. Yeah. You know, every, every woman behind a man. Um, you know, she, she, was, she had that verve and that will for freedom before she even met O'Donovan Rasa. You know, you could tell from the poetry she wrote when she was a teenager and, uh, you know, growing up in Clonakilty and the famine around her and such. So I think, you know, and she, from that early time, you know, you could kind of point that trajectory all the way to the end of her life in terms of resilience, perseverance, perseverance, planning. You know, she was determined. She yeah. was determined. O'Donovan Rasa, you know, he, of course, went through a lot, but he was also a very unpredictable character. I mean, you know, he would, you know, say these crazy things. I mean, that was part of his strategy, propaganda to get the tension and such. But, um, you know, what's interesting, another thing that Judy uh, talked about in the film is when O'Donovan Rasa at one point was really in a low state, and probably this is the 1880s at some point, um, drinking, untrustworthy, essentially, uh, Mary Jane was still talking to John Devoy, another famous Fenian, yeah. um, who Adonovan Rasa had fallen out with, and saying, you know, you should keep away from Rasa right now. He's not the best person to have the face for the movement, you know. So, <laughs> so there was, there, you know, she was talking and strategizing mm. at very high levels during her whole life, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, that's important to come by. It's not just she. It's not just that yeah. she's behind him, you know. Yeah, like, supporting to, what he does, which she yeah. did. She did all of that, oh, she but did she did well. a lot more besides. And it, it's the lot more besides that that, that your film really shows to us in, in a yes. wonderful way. Not least of which is when her husband died in 1915. Um, she was involved with Thomas Clark, uh, 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 I think it was, who was predominantly involved in the organisation of of the funeral of O'Donovan Rossa. And let's listen to historian Connor Dodd, uh, historian at Glasnevin Ceremony, Cemetery, rather, talking about O'Donovan, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa's funeral in 1915, where the famous Patrick Pierce oration took place. And we'll hear a little section of that as well. There's about 40,000 people or so, maybe even more, that actually watched the funeral. Somewhere between 8,000 or so actually followed the procession as well. Essentially, it would kick off what would become the 1916 Rising, and a path is opened up at that graveside when Pierce gives the speech which will change the history of Ireland forever. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland, unfree, shall never be at peace. They were well aware of what they were doing and, and the effect that they hoped it would have. And they were hoping they'd make history, and, and they did. 
And that's uh, historian Connor Dodd in a, in a clip there from Rebel Wife, the film that I'm speaking about this evening with the director of the film, Williams Ross Cole. And it is extraordinary. And, and the film really shows this uh, and, and the subsequent compl- uh, comments from John Devoy when your great-grandmother died, Williams. It really shows that the, the orchestration of that funeral, which was predominantly your great-grandmother, was hugely important in terms of a political act. That's what it was. Hugely important. And it's incredible to go back and look and, you know, understand how massive it really was and the coverage it got and what it told the world, really. You know, it said, look, all these factions that you might have seen previously, we've all come together and we're ready for something. And that was a stage that was, you know, created partly by Mary Jane And I think she really saw that. I mean, at first they were going to have the funeral in Cork. Um, Nothing so bad about having the funeral in Cork, by the way. We're in Cork right now. You are. Be careful what you say. Careful. (laughs) But but the uh, you know just the idea that it could it could be this massive massive event. And you know the Mm. British were 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 spying on all of the people coming. I mean, there's I have some material in there that showed that Mary Jane was, you know, reports on Mary Jane and what she was doing during before the funeral and afterward. But, um, you know, the significance of that event is really could not be under underestimated. And remember, yes, people often, everybody talks about the the gravesite oration, as we heard it there from Patrick Pierce. But if there had been no funeral organized, there would have been no gravesite oration. (laughs) You know, that is for sure. And you mentioned Cork. We should mention it along the way. I thought it was very interesting to see the people of Clonakilty and the people of Cork are very keen to hold on to their Mary Jane Irwin, uh, or Mary Jane O'Donovan Ross, as she became when she married. And Mm -hmm. I know there's lots of material and you touch on this in the West Cork Regional Museum. we see some of the some of the stuff uh, in and around your your great grandmother. It's a wonderful story, and I'm glad you have told it to us, uh, Williams. Thanks so much for being with us this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope it inspires other stories of women in history. Williams Cole and well, Rebel Wife is the title of the film Williams was speaking to us about. Its world premiere takes place at Indie Cork this Sunday, the newly opened Ark Cinema, formerly The Gate. More information on IndieCork.com and you can uh, also find out uh, on William Cole's own website um, some, some issues in and around the film itself. Welcome back to Arena and a particular welcome to our audience who and viewership who may be watching us right now on the live stream. I'm looking directly at them and if you want to join them you can do so on the following website rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live. Let's take a moment right now to recall Paul Lynch's acceptance speech last month when he won this year's Booker Prize for his novel Prophet Song. To my agent Simon Truen, thank you for being my consigliere. To my publisher, Juliet Maybe, and All at One World, three times, Juliet, you've done this. Extraordinary. Thank you for having faith in my writing. There you go, Paul Lynch accepting the Booker Prize for Literature for his novel, Prophet Song. 
Juliet is the woman he referenced in the midst of all of that. What is the meaning of the number three? Paul was referring to his publishers, Juliet Maybe, and her one world partner, Novin Dutstar, who have been the publishing house behind not one, but three Booker Prize winners. Paul Lynch for Prophet Song this year, obviously. Previously, Paul Beatty for The Sellout in 2016. And Marlon James for A Brief History of Seven Killings before that. And I'm delighted to be joined by Juliet Maybe and Novin Dutstar. Uh, the husband and wife pair behind these several successes. Let's start, um, Juliet, by quite simply saying con- congratulations. Um, I guess there's nothing nothing to match a Booker Prize win. How did number three compare with numbers one and two? Oh, gosh. Um, it, it was quite nerve-wracking because we knew that it had a chance of winning, whereas with the first two... We were quite convinced we weren't going to win and we'd managed to convince our authors we weren't. So we enjoyed the dinner and we enjoyed the shortlist without having the nerves associated with the anticipation of possibly winning. So this was a much more nerve wracking affair. Yeah, because I, I spoke to Paul uh, on the night of the win, actually. Or, sorry, the day, the day mm. after the win. And he, he, he was talking about a moment when the pressure got to him and he had to leave the room. Such was the tension. Is it really that tense a room? People talk about, particularly the Booker Prize, that it's a very tense atmosphere. I think it's difficult because it comes sort of three hours in. So you're sitting there, you're having drinks, and then you're sitting having dinner, trying to eat your meal and being very aware of the clock ticking very slowly towards quarter to ten. And um, I think once they started with the initial speeches, we all relaxed a bit. But it was very, it was very nerve-wracking. I mean, much, much more than the first two, I think. And, and uh, coming to you then, Novin, uh, you know, one of the one of the kisses of death for previous Booker Prize shortlisted novels was being the bookie's favourite. Paul was that bookie's favourite. How nervous did that make you? Did that just add to the tension? Well, it, it, it is. You're absolutely right. Normally, the favourite hadn't won in the past few years. So uh, that would I mean, we were fairly optimistic that Paul had a very good chance of winning this. But of course, we can never be sure. You know, it's, it's a real. Any of the shortlisted authors could have won this, and um, yes, we felt the fact that he was a favorite was a slight disadvantage. Uh, but fortunately, it all worked out. They came to the right decision. I feel. I, I would be surprised if you said anything different <laughs> than that. Um, did you, what did you feel, Novan? At, at what point did you think that this was a possible contender? Well, I mean, I personally felt that the event, you know, the election results in Argentina, uh, the election results in um, Holland, um, the, the kind of the dr- dramatic events in Ireland, it, it, I felt in, ter- in terms of geopolitics, I felt it makes the book very timely. Although the judges of the Booker Prize felt that, um, you know, they weren't choosing a political book, but to my mind, it made the book particularly timely and that improved his chances of being a winner. So I was fairly optimistic a few weeks before the event. Mm. So I felt I, I gave it an 80 percent chance in our office. You know, we're talking to colleagues. That that was my feeling. And there we get your background in accountancy screaming out that you, <laughs> <laughs> that you gave it an 80 percent chance. Quite precise, not 81 and not 79. Um, uh, and we'll explain that background in accountancy just shortly. But before we do that, for you, uh, for you, Judith, uh, Juliet, in, in, in those terms, much was made in many of 
the interviews that Paul had about the, the riots that had taken place in, in Dublin that week, November the 23rd. Um, mm. Do you think events like that feed into the into the ju- into the judge's decision or what way do you think that, you know, the contemporary moment fits in, fe- feeds into a decision that is made? I mean, I was a little worried that they would almost, if it was a 50-50, and of course, Paul Murray's Be- The Beasting was mm. a very hot favourite as well. I thought that almost might tip them against choosing Prophet Song in case people assumed that they were choosing it purely because of the timeliness. But they insisted that they chose it on the writing. And many of the comments they made when it was longlisted and shortlisted suggest that they they really just loved Paul's writing. It's very lyrical. It's mesmerizing. It, it's quite unusual. He's really breaking new ground there. And I think that they recognized that. And they felt that for that reason, it really stood above the rest. Although the, the, all the books on the shortlist were incredibly strong. Yeah, it was a very strong list. And, and of course, we we didn't mind which Paul in some ways. One of, as, long as, it, <laughs> as long as it was one of our Pauls. And exactly. Paul, Paul was a lucky name. Paul was a lucky name this year for sure. Uh, talk to me a little bit, if you would, Ju- Julietta, about the previous, uh, many I'll ask you about Grace and I'll ask Novan about Beyond the Sea. Um, uh, sorry, Grace and Beyond the Sea were the previous books of Paul's that you that mm-hmm. you published. Let me talk to you about the previous the previous winners, the sellout in in twenty sixteen. Paul Beatty. This was a total outsider at the time. Give us a little bit about the novel itself, and you know what you felt about it. What attracted you as publishers to it? Um. I mean, what what attracted me to the sellout by Paul Beatty was the fact that it was, I think it was a, it really a satire on race. So on the one hand, on the on the sort of readers level, it was very funny, it was very sharp, but underneath it had this real angry stream, and it fed into the long history of race relations in America and the injustice and inhumanity that that involved. And I remember being at school and finding out from the teacher that Gulliver's Travels was a political satire disguised as a children's story. And I just thought that was such a clever idea because people will read it as Mm. as an interesting story and not realise that actually it was having a pop shot at the current government. And so I think it was always in my mind that coming at fiction has has a way of reaching people in a way that, say, a non-fiction book on race might not. And so from that point of view, it seemed particularly um, clever and interesting and a way of reaching a, a broad readership that otherwise probably wouldn't pick up a book on, say, that the history of racism yeah. in America. So, I mean, I was very attracted to that. But it was an absolute outsider. I think it was probably fish on the voting list at the time. And I, I don't think anyone was more shocked than Paul and I when it won. But yeah. uh, obviously completely delighted. Well, Novan, I'm sure you had you had a percentage chance in your mind for that one as well <laughs> on the night, did you? No, that one, those ones we were completely relaxed because we didn't think he had a chance of winning because we had won it the year before, you know, in 2015. So we thought there's no way they will give you it to get, and that, two years running. Yeah, that, had, yeah. that had been for Marlon James and a brief history of, of seven killings. I remember speaking to Marlon That's right. uh, 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 right. just after okay. just after his win. I mean, that was a phenomenal, uh, a phenomenal piece of writing. And um, what attracted, again, same question as I put to Juliet regarding uh, the Paul Beatty novel, what attracted you as publishers to the Marlon James book, Nova? Well, I, I'm going to ask Juliet to, to respond to this because I only publish our non-fiction books. 
Right. And Juliet is entirely responsible <laughs> and guilty for all the fiction that we have published. Um, yeah, I love that. All well, the responsibility lands on your shoulders, Juliet. <laughs> absolutely. All the risk as well. Um, I mean, I the first novel I ever published was in 2009, which was Moll and James, um, The Book of Night Women, which for me, I mean, I'd, I'd been planning to start a fictionist for quite a long time and had sort of hesitated because it's quite a different animal than publishing nonfiction. And it's not just predictable how how the novel will, how people respond to the novel. But um, I, I, I was talking to some agents at Frankfurt Book Fair and one of them said, oh, I think I've got just the book for you. And she mentioned the Book of Nightmare, which is written almost entirely in pidgin English, um, set in Jamaica in the 18th century on a slave plantation, which... It's not everybody's cup of tea, I would say, but mm. I absolutely fell in love with his writing. I mean, he's mesmerizing as a writer. Yeah. His way with words is astonishing. And so because I'd bought that, and this has done really well over here, um, obviously we had an option on the next novel, which was A Brief History of Seven Killings, which, again, somebody met me who said that three years earlier I said it was going to win the Booker, and I really can't remember ever saying that. And we certainly didn't go into the award yeah. ceremony thinking Expecting. it was going to win. Yeah. No, but I mean, it is a, quite a, I mean, that year, Little Life was expected to win and um, everybody expected it to win. Yeah. So we went in rather comfortably assuming we were going to, you know, obviously nice be in dinner. the running. But yeah. um, we had a very nice dinner and um, Marlon didn't prepare a speech and um, it all, it all, it all, it was all a huge shock. But yeah, I'm pretty he, certain that, that Marlon James could manage a speech off the top of his head somehow or other, though, I'd I, say. I, I think... That is exactly the kind of skill he has. I mean, the, he was sitting next to a journalist who we didn't know at the time, knew he'd won. And she leant over to him and said, look, if you win, mm. don't just thank your mother and your agent and your editor, but say something interesting about fiction that he literally walked up on stage and spoke for five minutes. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was brilliant yeah, absolutely. Now we get to the accountancy bit. I, I wondered why did they <laughs> choose why did they choose the title One World? Well, I can hear nonfiction and fiction were brought together. Uh, there, there were all sorts of race elements in some of the books that you're talking about. There. One World fits into that. But I think where it really fits is an anthropologist, Judith, or why do I keep calling yeah. you Judith? I have no idea why I'm doing that. <laughs> Juliet, um, an anthropologist and an accountant. Uh, Novin, now that's one world to bring those two occupations together. Um, you can't put the responsibility for this one on Juliet's shoulders, surely. <laughs> um, how did the relationship start and when did publishing become the thing as opposed to anthropology and accountancy? All right. Well, we were both students at Edinburgh University and um, yeah, Julia was studying anthropology. I was doing economics and accountancy. And um, she basically only married me because she wanted to go <laughs> to Iran. And she was looking for a free translator and, you know, to, to do some research on the nomadic tribes in Iran. But um, unfortunately, with the Iranian revolution in 1979, you know, we were never able to go to Iran. Mm. And, uh, but, we, you know, since those days, we were interested in, in the book industry and uh, eventually, at some point, when we had two children and Juliet was getting very bored being a housewife, we decided to do something where we could um, share the childcare and uh, career together. And that's when we, we set up One World. And One World, well, because uh, we are interested in global ideas, oneness of mankind, mm. social issues, that kind of thing. So it, it seemed to suit our general interest in life. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can see why why the, the two of you um, would, would have that in mind. Is there a type of book, uh, Juliet, that you think is a one-world book? Um, I mean, in nonfiction, we were always interested in making knowledge accessible. When we set up in the 80s, there was no Google or, you know, there's no internet. There was mm. no Wikipedia. So that was very much what we were trying to do, was to publish authors from all over the world and try and reach a global market. And that's partly why the name seemed very um, obvious. In fiction, I really, I mean, I've got a very eclectic taste and I really like um, authors that open up a, a world to the reader, whether it's a, a social world or it's a different country or, a, a, um, you know, something like could be on a different issue entirely. And I think a lot of my books reflect that. I have authors now from over 50 countries and translated from over 20 languages. And I think we've managed to build a stable of authors that together produce some very mm. interesting work. And I, th I think readers seem to respond very well to that. And given that um, you won in 2015 and 2016, not to put any pressure on, but is there any yeah. chance? Is there any chance that you could repeat <laughs> the feat by winning uh, both this year and next year? And could you get another Irish writer um, to, to do it for us? Well, I go yeah, ahead. I think we've got an. I think we've got an excellent chance. We're publishing um, your Irish author Keelan Hughes next year in April with a, a third book that we've published called The Alternatives, and I think she's got an excellent chance of giving us a second back-to-back -back win. That's that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, and and if there are three Keelans on the shortlist next year, I will eat my hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's a little unlikely. Uh, rather unlikely. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I think we were all a bit surprised about the three Pauls and there was a rumour that all the authors applying next year are going to change their name to Paul, but I think that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> the other, you also published, or you will be publishing Francis Mackin's debut novel? Or you published, yeah, we, sorry, we you published did publish it in 2020. Yeah, but unfortunately it published straight into the pandemic, ah. which is incredibly unfortunate. And of course the paperback then came out in 21, which was, you know, not a particularly... An opportune time to publish either, and it's just really unfortunate. But fa fabulous writer, and a really um, she 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 wrote. Um, you have to make your own fun around here, and it's a lovely book about three friends from school growing up and and their relationships changing. And I think she's a she's a real talented author there. Well, listen, uh, lovely to sp have spoken with both of you. Uh, triple congratulations, and I hope. We will speak this time next year about the fourth one. <laughs> it <laughs> would give so. me, it would give me great joy. Thanks so much for being well, with us. That's thank you, thank you thank very you. much for having us, Juliet. Maybe and Novan Dustar there of One World, and congratulations again to them, and of course to Paul Lynch for his win with Prophet Song. In October 1974, five people were killed and 65 injured when the IRA bombed a pub in Guildford. In the wake of that attack, Jerry Conlon, Paul Hill, Patrick Armstrong and Carol Richardson were arrested and wrongly convicted of the crime. After many court battles, the convictions were quashed and all four were released in July 1990, except Jerry Conlon's father, Giuseppe, who had died in 1980 while serving a 12-year sentence. Jerry later published a memoir, proved innocent, which director Jim Sheridan adapted and In the Name of the Father was released 30 years ago this month. Jerry Conlon, lifer, 30 years sentence and I know how to survive it, no problem. 
That confession led the police to the ringleader, Conlon and his terrorist family. Come over to your auntie Alice to get you a lawyer. They arrested everybody in the house. Conspiracy to murder. And one of your colleagues, my lord, who sat where you sit now, said, and I quote, it is a pity you were not charged with treason to the crown, a charge that carries a penalty of death by hanging. A sentence I would have no difficulty in passing in this case. You're very good at the English, aren't you? You see, I, I don't understand your language. Justice, mercy, clemency. I, I literally don't understand what those words mean. You made me cold, and you made me hard. Are you doing this deliberately? No. Are you doing it deliberately? Stop it. Are you doing it deliberately? <laughs> feel happy, I try to remember the smell of tobacco. Oh, my heart. The voices of Pete Postlethwaite, Emma Thompson, Daniel Day-Lewis, all set to the song You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart, composed by Gavin Friday, Bono and Morris Caesar, and delivered by the late Sinead O'Connor. We might come back to that uh, particular song for the end of the programme this evening. Uh, Stephen Benedict is in studio with me. And by the way, you can watch us live, rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash watch hyphen live if you are so inclined. You were telling me as we were listening to that trailer and that compilation from the, the film, Stephen, since Stephen's day, yeah. 1993, Three. you remember it. Very well. Myself and my older brother, Richard, we raced in to see the movie in the Savoy One and it was a really visceral experience. Um, the the audience was obviously a rapt audience. It was a, it was a hometown audience mm. for Jim Sheridan. But um, the the way it was handled, I think, um, was was quite brilliant because, you know, when the movie was released, um, some people were. I mean, it was at the time of the peace the peace process was yeah. beginning to gain some traction, and the film was met with criticism and accusations of. That, that Jim Sheridan facts. and Terry George, the, the co-writer, had, to say the least, massaged the facts. Yeah. That's what the nice people said. Well, more than that, I mean, some quarters accused them of um, b- making an IRA propaganda. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it wasn't only in the British press. I mean, uh, there was a lady called Rita, uh, Rita Kempley. She was writing for the Washington Post. And I just have a little quote from her here. She says, she, um, Sheridan clearly has a shillelagh to shake, if not an axe to grind in this cumbersome finger-wagger, part courtroom drama, part jailhouse memoir, mm. part political statement, the story lacks focus and ultimately runs out of dramatic impetus. It also lacks a sympathetic character. The truth is, Conlon probably would have wound up in jail eventually anyhow. I, well, she gives a little bit away when she starts that off with shillelagh to oh, yeah. shake. Yeah, yeah. It says, tells us more about her than it does about <laughs> I, the film. It does. Now, to, to be fair... 
the movie was very, very well received outside mm. of the Washington Post in the United States. It was nominated for two BAFTAs in London, four Golden Globes in Los Angeles, seven Academy Awards. It won the Best Picture at the Berlin Film Festival, won the Golden Bear. It was nominated for Best Pro- um, the Producers Guild of America mm. Award and the Writers Guild of America Award. But I think, you know, the question is whether it holds up. And I, Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, even the fact that, um, and there were some magnificent scenes yeah. in, that, in that film. I remember, I think everybody will remember the one of the, the papers going down. Outside, outside of the with, jail. Yeah, the, when, the, the, and the, I think yeah. that is based uh, quite absolutely on yeah. fact. It is something that You couldn't is, make that up. No, it yeah. can only come from experience. But... There is a there is some responsibility, surely, on the filmmakers to to stick to some aspects of the fact. Um, and Giuseppe and Jerry Conlon were, we're never near each other in, no, in, in terms of being in the same cell. Yet we see scenes between them in the same cells. Is that dramatic license? Is that acceptable? You know, it, it is. But, you know, people say it's, you know, um, it's irresponsible. But I don't in this instance, mm. I don't think it is because nobody was harmed by the changes that Terry George and Jim Sheridan um, imposed upon the story. And I think that, you know, it would uh, when I'm watching it, I watched it again recently, I was thinking, how would it have been different if someone else had made it? And the reason why I was started to think about that was because Gabriel Byrne had initially, he was the first person who stepped in and, and snapped up the rights to Jerry Conlon's memoir, Proved Innocent. And initially, Gabriel Byrne was not only going to produce the film, he was going to star as Jerry mm. Conlon. And, um, you know, Gabriel Byrne has said in an interview that had he made it, he, the movie would have been very, very different. He's not claiming it would have been a better film. Yeah, it was certainly going to be different. different yeah. he would, his approach would have been a lot more analytical of the political system and the violence that it perpetrated. Because the other aspect is, and again, we can see the reason Garth Pierce is one of the, the, the who defended the, yes. the, 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 the men at the time. She was one of the big heroes mm. um, for sure in uh, gaining their freedom for them. But it was, in fact, the Somerset police who uncovered, That's who, right. who found out about the suppressed evidence, which was key to having them. Yeah, released. and it was it was a very very quick, clear, easy um, moment that Sheridan and um, Terry George um, delivered it was for her to come across this suppressed evidence, and it clearly said, "Do not show to the defence." Now, you know, I think I don't think that was actually written down mm. on, on the piece, but, but you're actually right. There, there are there are uh, exaggerations and compressions and massaging of facts. But I, I suppose once you're in, it's because the history is so recent in this case, yeah. or was so recent in this yeah. case, that possibly people are get more upset about it. But you think about Neil Jordan's film of Michael Collins, the same thing, yeah. the same arguments were are trotted out. Yeah, and it depends who the audience is. I mean, we get very, you know, understandably, we're I wouldn't say we're precious, but we're protective of our own history. But when we mm. go from which look at a movie like Napoleon, we shrug when we see that Napoleon was um, firing cannonballs at at the pyramids. He never did that. He never rode into battle Mm. on the back of a horse. But we sort of let those go because it's not our our own history. But I think, you know, when I was looking at the film recently, um, for me, the, the reason why it worked is because what Jim Sheridan did to the story and what he saw in the story. And if you can just go with me in a second on this one, because it's going to sound a little bit strange. Mm. But I think when I was looking at it, I was reminded of the 19th century Italian fairy tale, <gasps> Pinocchio. Now, just go with me on this one. <laughs> Jerry Conlon is a Pinocchio type figure. He's a young boy always getting into trouble. Giuseppe is his father, Geppetto, mm. who's always worried about his wayward son. Um, Geppetto's nightmares, Geppetto's fears turn into nightmares when Pinocchio is accused of planting a bomb. Giuseppe Geppetto then crosses the sea to help his son, but they both end up in the belly of the whale. Okay, see where you're going. And then what happens in the belly of the whale? Um, Pinocchio Jerry suffers a catastrophic emotional breakdown, and he turns on his father in the most vicious way possible. 
And then the father then absorbs. This is the great. This is the the counterpoint to this to this anger. He absorbs his son's pain. He absorbs the hatred and the suffering. And then he turns mm. the story into a tale of redemption. But here's the stroke of genius for me, because this is what Jim Sheridan saw in it. When Giuseppe died before he was able to be released, what, what Jim, Jim Sheridan was able to infuse in the story is the sense of not being, see, not being able to see the promised land. So he took, a, he took a memoir of agony and then turned it into a mythological story of truly biblical proportions. And I think that's the reason why the movie travelled and this movie why them still, the movie still holds up today. Well, we listen to Jim Sheridan at this point, in fact, talking yeah. about his approach, because given given what you've just told us about and anything that has a father-son relationship <laughs> in it, Jim Sheridan... It's all always, about the daddy. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he's, he said that previously about um, Richard Harris. In, in the field. In, in the field. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever this is, it's not about me, it's about <laughs> your father. But let's listen to Jim Sheridan talking about his approach to the making of In the Name of the Father. I don't know. I love, it's a love of the mother. It's fighting the dad. Because he was always the negative guy in the movies, like the field. The father was bad. In the plays I wrote, sometimes I put my own father's name in it. And, and, and my mother would go to the theatre and say, that's you. And I was like, ugh. And then I realised, you know, it's not really my dad. It's just the situation. So then I realised I have to make a movie about a good dad and I would tell him and he'd be totally happy. He'd be drinking his pint totally. And to get that smile out of him, I would tell him 20 times. And I made the movie and so on the opening night I said, uh, the prototype from my left foot was my mother and the prototype for this is my father. And he's sitting there and he's coming up on stage and he walked up and he got a big clap and he hugged me. And in this ear, he said, I love you. And I pushed him back to look in his eyes because I'd never heard that before. And I just looked at him for a while. The audience kept clapping. Pete Postlethwaite told me he was crying in the back. The audience went, it went that far, the emotion, right? That's 500 feet. And he was dead two weeks later. Died like that. That's mad. It is an extraordinary story that Jim Sheridan mm. tells. So that's Jim Sheridan speaking about the making of or, or his approach to mm. the story and that he was looking for the, the good father. We're celebrating the 30th, yeah, 30th, 30th anniversary, anniversary yeah. of the making of In the Name of the Father. Stephen Benedict with us in the studio and remembering his own visit to the cinema. <laughs> and Stephen said, well, you better watch some, go to something good on St. Stephen's Day this year as well. Yeah, <laughs> well, it'll be, a, it'll be a tall order to find a movie to match it, I yeah. think, you know. However, central Pete Postlethwaite in that movie yeah. was absolutely extraordinary. No question yeah. about that. But central to the whole project is Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, as I was saying to you, it was originally Gabriel Byrne who was going to play the part. But when Jim Sheridan came in, they had <coughs> worked together a yeah. couple of years before with Jim Sheridan's very, very first film, My Left Foot. And surprise, well, it wasn't a surprise looking back, but when Daniel Day-Lewis won the Best best Actor that night uh, in Los Angeles, he very famously quipped, he says, uh, you've just make, given me the makings of one hell of a weekend in Dublin. And so there was a great Irish wave coming through in Hollywood. So when mm. um, Daniel Day-Lewis was cast, I believe it was his suggestion that they bring in Pete Postlethwaite as the father. And I don't know who else would have been on the books, mm. but we've got to remember that the studios who were the Universal Studios who were financing the film would have had to cross check and say, we're going to back the movie with that with that character. But Pete Postlethwaite was not Pete Postlethwaite when he was cast. So Daniel Lewis played an enormous part in helping to cast the movie and his weight secured Emma Thompson. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the, the Daniel Day-Lewis president, right. and yeah. uh, Emma Thompson, of course, playing the Garth Pace playing the, yeah. the, the solicitor in the, in the piece as well. Let's have a listen to Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, he, now, he'd already done My Left Foot. That's correct, uh, yes. So And, and there was always all the talk about that, how he stayed in character on yeah. set, etc., etc. Let's listen to Daniel Day talking about his approach to In the Name of the Father. You know, I follow my curiosity, and it takes me into all kinds of strange places and I satisfy that curiosity as much as I can when I'm working. And, and I do it for the simple reason that there are things I need to know and understand. They had these thugs to come and bang on the doors with tin cups every 10 minutes for three nights so that I couldn't sleep. And then at the end of those three nights, they had three teams of two real special branch policemen who interrogated me for nine hours without stopping. I think that's probably the first time I have ever admitted to that. But I feel the need to because, you know, this was a man who was innocent. He was just a ragamuffin kid working a few scams in Belfast and just about getting away with it, just. And at that time, the Prevention of Terrorism Act was in place, which meant that uh, the police could hold a man for seven days and seven nights in a police station without any phone calls, without recourse right. to a lawyer. And during the course of that time, Jerry Conlon signed a confession. And for that reason, he lost 15 years of his life and his father died. That was the only way I could figure out to try and come close to an understanding of why an innocent man destroys his own life. Daniel Day-Lewis there speaking about um, his approach to In the Name of the Father, which is 30, 40, 30 years old 30 years, yeah. this year. Um, Stephen Benedict with me in studio. That's extra. I mean, we know that Daniel Day-Lewis goes to extraordinary mm. lengths and went to extraordinary lengths. I'd love if he went to extraordinary lengths again, but he says he's done with it. Yeah. Maybe when you hear what he puts himself through, you can understand why he, yeah, he's done way, with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I think when you were younger, you can do that sort of thing. Mm. Because, you know, um, but it's so draining on the on the artist. And I think that's the reason why he stepped away, because he wants to give as much as he can to every single performance. But, you know, I'm amazed by that confession, because usually he's very modest mm. about, about his craft and how his approach, because clearly he knows that it can be very, very intimidating if, he, if everybody knows the lengths to which he, uh, he prepares for a part. But listening to him talking there, I was reminded of the famous story, which is always told at Dustin Hoffman's expense, when Dustin Hoffman was starring in um, Marathon Man yeah. and he had a very, very difficult scene and he stayed up for three or four nights exhausting himself and he arrived on set and Laurence Olivier, who was starring opposite him, said, my dear, have you, why don't you just try acting? It's so much easier. And everybody laughs at that story mm. because it's told from Laurence Olivier's point of view. But I think the thing is that Olivier, very good actor as he was, he didn't bring himself to the character. He brought the character to him and he shaped the character. He bent the character to Olivier's will. Dustin Hoffman, at his best, did the very opposite. He bought himself, just as Daniel Day-Lewis does, brings himself yeah. to the character. And it's interesting because Daniel Day-Lewis, at the end of that, then starts talking about how he was trying to understand the position of an innocent man in this situation, not how can I portray that. It's he actually wanted to fully understand that. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's the brilliant thing because he, he pinpoints the cat catastrophic tragedy of Jerry Conlon's life. Mm. He was, we always tend to forget he was incredibly young. I think Conlon was 21 
when he'd been arrested. And he was, as he said, he's been interrogated for a very length, very great length of time. And then on top of that, he's in prison. And as a consequence yeah. of his confession, his father dies. I mean, the tragedy that rippled, ripped right through his life wasn't just that one yeah. event. It went on and on. Um, so have you decided what film you're going to put into the category <laughs> of your Stephen's Day movie for this year yet? I've no idea. But, you know, <clears> the <throat> thing is, when we're looking at the thinking of the movie now, you know, it was up for seven Oscars. And it had the misfortune of coming up against a really, really yeah. competitive year. The Piano was up by Jane, Cam- Jane Campion. Um, there was also Tom Hanks nominated in the role of, for Philadelphia. There was The Remains of the Day. And then there was Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Now, yeah. I think if that if a Schindler's List been released in a different year, we would now be lauding the multi, multi-Oscar well, winning Jim Sheridan. Well, it's, it, it's award winning in lots of our <laughs> minds, I think, at any rate. Stephen, thanks so much Thank for, for sharing your thoughts on In the Name of the Father with us uh, tonight celebrating its uh, 30th anniversary this year and yes we did mention Sinead O'Connor earlier on and to finish up this evening why don't we listen to Sinead O'Connor and the song from the movie uh, In the Name of the Father Your blood to me is Had Sinead O'Connor and You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart from the film In the Name of the Father, 30 years old this year. And that is our lot for this Friday evening and for this week here on Arena. Paula Shields Research, Tolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator, Liam Mullen was on sound this evening, and tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. I will speak with you once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.